Welcome to Woke Isn't Enough, a podcast created by two women of color who think that it's time to move collectively beyond checking the boxes when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Jess Aiden Lee, and I'm here with my colleague, Fiona Elephant, and we are the founders of Healing Equity United. Hi, Fiona. It's been a while since we talked. Yeah, Jess, it has been. Yeah, I know. Um, I was been... I've been really following just what's been going on with the January 6th hearings. I know there was another one last week and, and, you know, it's, and then there's the Oath Keepers trial and I've been catapulted into conversations with friends and family and coworkers about um, just the demise of democracy in this country. And what do you mean by demise of democracy? Now, Fiona, you know, you're the definition queen. And so um, what I can say about the demise of democracy is that it just feels like, you know, especially with the January 6th um, and what happened there, that there is a certain percentage of this country who just don't want to believe in our democratic process anymore. And that's really ironic um, just because, you know, we've always touted ourselves as like, you know, an example of democracy for others to follow, even though we're not perfect. And, and I don't know that that's what it means to me. What about to you? Well, for me, it means that, well, democracy in and of itself is always, has always been controversial in terms of, um, who's supposedly upholding and uplifting democracy, whether democratic principles are applied democratically to everyone. Um, and I don't know that um, there's always been the greatest consistency um, in equitable practices about democracy, but in terms of like where I'm coming from and how I approach this, it's what are the systematically inequitable underpinnings of what's happening right now? I don't think that the quote unquote attack on democracy is a mistake or happening um, or happening in a random way. Um, I think that this is all really rooted in systemic oppression. Well, it's absolutely rooted in in systemic oppression. I mean, honestly, like we know that for a while now, white supremacy and white nationalism has been on the, on the rise and there's been this need to maintain white power in this country. And, and, you know, the myth of, of losing everything they have and, you know, which is really, you know, something I've been talking about in the media about this, the great replacement theory. And so, so tell us a little bit more about what the great replacement theory is. Yeah, so I think that the, I think that I want to be very clear about the connection that we're trying to make here. So we're talking about attacks on democracy, we're talking about the demise of democracy, as some people 
say right now. Um, and what I was saying was that I think that it's all rooted in systemic oppression. Uh, a lot of this conversation is um, being brought up by, you know, oath keepers and, um, you know, all of these neo-Nazi right-wing groups and some of the things that they've talked about and they heavily rely on, as you've said, was the great replacement theory. Um, and so apparently it's called the great replacement or the white replacement theory. And it's a conspiracy theory that, um, you know, people who are of the global majority, black, indigenous, people of color, Latine, Asian, are supposedly galvanizing their efforts and coming together to uh, undermine the political power and culture of white folks living in Western cultures and countries. And it says that um, folks of the global majority are a threat to quote unquote white America and that this is a real life or death scenario for them unless they quote unquote do something about it. And it talks about invasions and conquering and, um, you know, definitely anti-immigration conversations happening, voter fraud conversations happening, anti-Semitic ideas being perpetuated. Um, and, and basically, I think at the end of the day, it's about a sense of losing power, losing access to resources, and that's all about systemic oppression, right? Well, yeah, and it, and as we know, it's this it's just it's like this theory of like uh, or metaphor of like death by boiling a frog, which is something that I think you or a colleague Cassie shared with me because. I'm not about no, you know, boiling no animals. But anyway, there's these. We should do an episode on all these metaphors. But anyway, um, I digress. But essentially, what that means is that there's been so many different policies, um, really just with systemic racism, as well as with oppressions around religion and gender, like the Muslim ban you know, the Supreme Court decisions. And folks are just saying like, you know, it's not that bad. It's it's not necessarily your community that's getting attacked. It's, you know, why don't you slow down and just really think about how we can be um, supporting one another. Um, or or it's like this whole idea of, of like always giving us something new and shiny to look at so that we forget what, you know, the last shiny thing that we were focused on is. Right. And so I don't know, Fiona, I, like, is that, is that true that like they're purposefully holding up these new shining things to then be like, well, the last shiny thing that, that I know you couldn't have had that, but like, look, look at this thing, you know? And then it's like, oh, you're getting angry about something else. So look at this other thing. And it's, it just feels like there's so much right now. And so so like, what should we be focused on going into, you know, the midterm elections that are less than a month away? We have states 
in this country like Texas and Arizona who are voting, you know, for for governors or in Georgia, right? For like um a Senate. And there's all these important elections. And and I don't know, like what are some of the ways that we can disrupt this demise of democracy? Well, look, I'll go first back to what you just said about, um, you know, having our concerns being dismissed or saying that we're being too reactive or overly dramatic, right? So every time something comes up in terms of um, an attack on the global majority, right? And people speak out. Folks say we're taking things out of context or we're being overly sensitive. But what I like to bring the conversation back to is that systemic oppression is systemic. And if folks don't look at the isolated incidents in the framework of the overarching systems, then of course it seems like we're being overly dramatic or highly sensitive or overreactive. And I think that your point about voter suppression falls right in line with that. If we look at um, you know, the individual vocal changes to laws, right? Um, some folks will say, well, we just want to make sure that, you know, there's not um, loitering, right? Which may lead to, uh, you know, um, illegal ballots being cast, right? Or coercion to take place. Well, we can't look at that just one law we have or one provision we have to look at all of them and the impact of all of them together that would culminate on what we're talking about here it's like a furtherance of um who has the right to participate in this democracy where when who has access to power who doesn't um and ultimately really corrupting the foundation of yeah, I mean, I think I think that it's a privilege for those of us who are in states where there are a multitude of ways for us to vote, right? Um so, you know, in in Oakland, we can vote by by ballot, by mail ballot. So we and there's actually like several drop boxes um near where we are so that we can drop them off. Um I think one I can actually even walk to. I know that's not the case with everyone else in the city, but um, we can do that. We can actually show up. Um, when I was on and actually vote in person, when I was living in San Francisco, you know, one of the things that was really interesting is that even in a residential neighborhood, um, residents could apply to have like their garage be um, a, a polling place. And the city, you know, like the elections, folks will come over and they'll set everything up. That doesn't, I mean, you're not supposed to put anything out as tell people how to vote, but it made it so much easier. So I literally just walked, I think it was like 30 steps. Maybe it was more than 30. So it was like half a block, like from where I lived and just voted in person. And, and then there are 
places like Harris County in Texas, where voting is really difficult if you don't have access to a vehicle, if you can't, you know, in terms of your health, stand online for hours and hours, right? And there's been issues with people saying like, volunteers who are even wanting to pass out water bottles for people who've been standing all day. It's like, nope, you can't pass out any water bottles, right? Like, there's just so much that a voter suppression that's happening that I think it makes me a little bit annoyed sometimes when there are folks who are eligible to vote, who are registered to vote, or who can easily register to vote, who don't show up and vote. It's like an exercise that we are purposefully not choosing to use. And and I always say that, you know, if you're living in a state where you can more easily vote and you choose not to, well, then that in and of itself is a vote. You're basically voting to not vote. And, and that's, that's just, you know, how I feel, but I also recognize that there is this complacency and people feel disenfranchised and like, they have no power and that nothing will change because, you know, as you say, it'll take generations for real change to happen. And so I don't know, Fiona, like, what do you, what do you think? Like, what would you say to people who are feeling complacent these days? I, I have to please uh, slightly modify what you say. I said, Um, I don't say that it'll take generations for real change to happen. What I said is that change will be slow and incremental, and it will take generations for folks to see the um, substantial changes or the quote-unquote visible changes that they are hoping to see. That will take generations. I think that... um, what we've been talking about in terms of the demise of democracy that's rooted in systemic oppression from my perspective has taken generations to occur. And there have been many, many um, smaller components that have led up to, to where we are today. And I think that interrupting that is also going to take strategic, ongoing and, and long-term uh, work. And so, yes, there, there may be change tomorrow. There may be change next month, next year, in a decade from now. But ultimately, for us to see the, you know, um, tide change that we want, I think it's going to take some generations. We have to be willing to put in the work today in order for those future generations to benefit from that. That's what I said. And so thank you for clarifying that. But I guess my question is really around like, what if your do- what if your daughter or one of your two sons were to come up to you and be like, like, mom, what's the point? You know, like anything that we do, and I know two of your, uh, one of your sons can't vote yet because he's not old enough, right? But you have two kids who are eligible or able to vote now. What if they came up to you and they said, well, you know, I don't really see anything happening. Like, climate change is still going to be around. Black people are still going to be shot by the police. Like we just, there's, I mean, was it over the weekend that there was another incident? So what do we tell folks who feel, who are feeling complacent? Well, we have to still take action today to stop increased harm, right? 
I mean, complacency is just going to make increased harm more likely. It's going to you know, not provide any barrier to it. I mean, to me, that argument makes no sense. Well, as someone who found it very hard actually earlier this year, and, and let me tell you, my background is in political science. I worked on a presidential campaign when, when I was 17 because I was too young to vote, but I wanted to somehow make my mark and, uh, and try to impact it uh, in some way. As someone who's voted in almost every single election, except for the one where apparently the state of New York lost my, um, my request to vote via absentee because I was away at college, I felt I found it really difficult to vote in the primaries this year. Because I was part of that complacent group. I was like, is this, I mean, I feel like we're voting for like one of two evils. Or it's like, what's the less worse choice? And I know that I'm not alone in, in, in that. And, and I did, you know, I sat through the night researching. I put in as just much as much effort as I usually do in researching everyone that I'm voting for, not just, you know. Um, the main candidates. Uh. But I also recognize that, you know, if I'm feeling this way, that I also know for the first time, like what it feels like for other people, for young folks who are also struggling and, you know, just don't want to vote. And so I don't think that we can just say, hey, you should vote anyway. Just like you have to pay your taxes anyway. I think that voting is one of the things, one of the privileges that we might be able to exercise. But I also agree at this point that we have to move beyond voting because if all we had to do was vote, then I think things would be a lot different than they are. I mean, just look at the electoral college. If all we had to do was vote, then I think things would be different. In fact, with the electoral college, they should have done student elections like that my whole, um, like when we were growing up, Fiona, because I think it, it kind of blew my mind to understand it when I was in high school. And it's like, but when I was in the second grade and we had to vote on something, it was popular. It was like majority. But anyway, I digress again. And so, you know, some of the other things that I think that we we could be doing in addition to voting is to recognize that we are now in a place where we have to be uncomfortable and get comfortable with being uncomfortable and having uncomfortable conversations. You know, I'm sure that every one of us can probably name one person in our family, our friend group, our neighbor, our coworker, who doesn't understand the way that white supremacy shows up. What would it look like for us to have an uncomfortable conversation with them? What would it be like for us to take that risk? Um, I think other things that we can do is to work towards combating misinformation. You know, recognize and call in or even call out misinformation on social media. I recently did that on Twitter. I called someone in, um, private messaged them because they were talking about, you know, two um, incidents of Asian hate that occurred in Oakland Chinatown when it actually occurred in Oakland Little Saigon. I was like, you know, the Asian, the Chinese community and the Vietnamese community are not the same. Um, getting involved in politics. So 
you know, supporting a local candidate through canvassing, fundraising, door knocking. Um, there are actually more global majority or BIPOC candidates today than there were 10 or even 20 or 50 years ago. And so my thing is, you know, find out who's running for office in your community and see how you can support, even if we're like, oh, we don't really have a lot of time. I mean, are there certain things that we could do, such as talk to the two neighbors who live near us and just tell them a little bit about what we know? Um, and then if you have the ability to, then, you know, put your money where your values are, right? So, you know, using your... Um, your wallet to donate to BIPOC-led grassroots organizations that are really working to center those who are most impacted and push for equitable policy change. I mean, those are just some of um, my thoughts. I mean, what do you think, Fiona? I love your thoughts about that. And I think that the other part of interrupting this attack on democracy is to really uplift being inquisitive and probing in this day of sound bites. It's, if it sounds like it's a sound bite, it probably is, and it's hiding a lot more substance to it. So if there is a change policy, if there is change representation, um, if there's, you know, uh, a conversation around even what to read in your school's libraries, then don't accept the soundbite. Dig deeper. Read the books that they say should be banned. Argue why they shouldn't be banned. I mean, even the school banning of books contributes to this entire um, attack on democracy in terms of um, having equitable access to ideas and thoughts and uh, all of that. So yeah, I love all of your suggestions. Speak up. And the reality is that we're all going to have to really be brave in the time to come in terms of, you know, when we uh, stand up for, for change, we're, we're opening up ourselves to um, attack as well. Uh, so uh, yeah, those are my little pearls of wisdom for you. All right, well, we can take those pearls of wisdom, Fiona, and let us know what you all plan on doing. I mean, are you voting this year in midterm elections? Are you thinking about talking to family? Are you reading books like Fiona and telling us what's in these books? So let us know what you're thinking. Thank you. Thank you.